The hosts for The Art of Aging will be recording via Zoom until it is safe to return to the studio. The Ruth Frost Parker Center for Abundant Aging presents The Art of Aging, information and tips on how to experience life more abundantly as we age. Our hosts are John King and Reverend Beth Long Higgins, Executive Director of the Ruth Frost Parker Center in Marion, Ohio, an initiative of the United Church Homes. Today, in honor of Black History Month, we meet Dr. John Fleming, who's had an extraordinary career in developing African-American history museums all over the country. When we began the Art of Aging podcast, we realized that personal stories inspire us to reflect on our own lives. Early in his life, John thought of becoming a missionary and went to Malawi with the Peace Corps. However, he was so horrified by how missionaries were treating Africans that he gave up his dream of becoming a theologian and instead built his career around raising our consciousness about Black history. Well, let's hear John's story. Tell me about where you were born and when you were born. I was born in Morganton, North Carolina on August the 3rd, 1944, toward the end of World War II. And you're a historian? And you tell the story of how your grandfather got you interested in the topic. Can you tell that story? My parents built their home next to my grandfather's home. And he liked to talk about the past. And he talked about the first African that the family could remember. The man's name was Thomasan, as we understand it. was born in Africa and, and brought over and worked for the Avery Plantation, uh, Waitstill Avery, which who was one of the largest slaveholders in the community. Waitstill Avery somehow found out that he could read and write Arabic. He would have Thomasan come into the house and read from the Koran in front of his friends. Eventually, Waitstill Avery felt like Thomasan would cause some difficulty among the other slaves. And when Thomasan asked if he could go back to Africa, he agreed on the one condition that he provide four Africans in his stead. So when they arrived in, on the west coast of Africa, and we don't quite know where, he was allowed to go ashore. And when he came back, he had the equivalent of $400 in gold dust, which he gave to the captain and told him that, give this to my master and tell him that I cannot enslaved my fellow Africans. So that was the last that we heard from Thomasan, but he had at least one son that we know about. As soon as the war ended and they were free, uh, my grandfather's grandfather, who was named Alfred, changed his name officially to Fleming. Tell me about your father. What did he do? He was born in 1919. When he finished school, he took a job at Drexel Furniture Company, and he worked there for roughly about 27, 28 years. He would come home and eat dinner and then go to a uh, photographic shop. He worked for this, this photographer, and he made frames. And then from there, he uh, drove a cab. Um, he was supporting a family of three children, built his home, and over the years was pretty prosperous for a man who basically did unskilled labor. 
and he left sizable estate and wanted to leave something for his children, and which he did, and, and he educated all of us. Now, you came of age during the Civil Rights Movement. Were you involved in some of the activities that were going on? When I was a high school junior in 1960, when the students sat in at the uh, Woolworths lunch counter in Greensboro, when they successfully integrated the lunch counter, they went across the state soliciting or training young people to demonstrate at various lunch counters. And two students came to Morganton and talked to us about doing a uh, sit-in at the local lunch counter there. We went through several days of training and selected a day after school. We all marched downtown, those people who were willing to participate nonviolently. And uh, some uh, said that they would not tolerate anyone hitting them, so they were eliminated from the group. So we walked down, sat down, and of course we were not uh, served, but when the white students from Morganton High School came by Woolworths and saw what was happening. They knew immediately that it was a demonstration, and they went in, and they harassed us. They heckled us and poured ketchup and mustard and that sort of thing. But physically, I don't think that there was any hitting. At the end of the day when the Woolworths closed, the city officials contacted us and asked that we not have any more sit-ins and to give them a week to decide what they were going to do. And we reluctantly agreed. We had some momentum, which we didn't want to give up, but we decided to at least give them the opportunity to come back with a uh, response. And a week later, they did. And they decided that, that they would integrate all places of public accommodations at once. And that was the end of that. We had no more demonstrations. So you went to Berea College in Kentucky. What was going on then? When I went to Berea... And the march from uh, Selma to Montgomery occurred, and the call went out for people from all over the country to to join the march. We organized a group from Berea to go down. We had a busload plus an overflow of maybe three or four cars, station wagons, which some of the faculty, progressive faculty, drove down. We marched into Montgomery. We were there listening to King and Lewis and other other folks speak that day. And at the end of the day, we got back on the bus and drove back to Berea. After college, you wanted to be a missionary for a while. I wanted to be a missionary. And before I went to seminary, I wanted to test this out as to whether or not it was going to work out for me. And I decided that I would apply to the Anglican Overseas Missionary Society out of London that had several missions in in Africa. I had all my shots. I did everything that I needed to do to go. And then I got a letter when my application was complete saying that I needed to get a master's degree because the American BA degree was not equivalent to the English BA degree. So I decided that I would apply for the Peace Corps. The only program that they had open at the time was an agricultural program in Malawi. And interesting enough, when I got there, one of the first things that I did was to go up to Fort Johnston to look at the Anglican school where I would have taught. And it turned out that that school did not have one teacher who had a B.A. degree, nor did the principal have a B.A. degree. So the decision 
not to have me in that school was not made by the Africans, but was made by the people in the Anglican Church. So that's how I got to Malawi, and I was there for two years in the Peace Corps. And there was something about your experience that made you less interested in being a missionary or being in the Peace Corps. There were missions all over Malawi, and it didn't matter whether they were Catholic or Protestant or Evangelical. They treated the Africans pretty badly. It was the same colonial attitude that the colonial government had. And I remember one of my friends was telling me about uh, the school that he went to and how they had all of these fruit trees, um, but they were not allowed to uh, uh, pick fresh fruit. If they wanted fruit, they had to get the rotten fruit that had fallen to the ground. And once we were going to Zambia to a game reserve, there were a group of us, maybe five or six, and we needed a place to stay overnight, and we stopped at this mission, and we asked if we could spend the night there. And initially they said no, but then I guess they thought about it and said we could sleep in their garage, which we did. And the next day we asked if we could wash up in their bathroom, and they said no, but we could use the hose uh, (laughs) outside in the yard. And that was sort of the attitude. And I was traveling to, to visit a friend, and it took me so long to get there, it was dark. And I still had a mile to go to get to their village. And it was pretty dense jungle uh, that I had to get through and had no light. And so I decided to uh, ask these Catholic monks if I could stay at the uh, monastery overnight until I could see where I was going the next day. And they said, no, I couldn't. Uh, I asked if I could uh, sleep on on the porch. And they said, no, I couldn't. So finally, I was able to borrow a flashlight from some British volunteers and just headed out into the uh, dense jungle and got to my uh, friend's village around 9 or 10 o'clock that night. But those were the sorts of uh, encounters that I had with missionaries and the way that they treated the, the Africans, or people of color for that matter, So it made me decide that I did not want to be associated with religious groups in Africa. So you got your graduate degree at Howard University. When I came back from the Peace School, I wanted to go to a historically black college and Howard was the best. So I worked full-time and went to graduate school full-time until the next year when I got a Ford Foundation fellowship, which allowed me to not have to work. Howard was really an exciting place. I majored in in history, and afterwards I worked for the Institute for the Study of Educational Policy for about five and a half years. Is that part of Howard? uh, Yes. It was funded by the Ford Foundation, and I was an adjunct in the Department of History. And during that time, I became active in the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History and worked with some of the top historians. John Hope Franklin had been a former president. Rafa Logan had been a former president. Charles Wesley had been a former president. So these were my mentors and people that served as advisors to me through most of the museum projects that I worked on over the next 30 years. So uh, at some point, the president of Central State, uh, how did he choose 
to solicit you to come work on the museum. So we were having dinner one evening after a board meeting, and he indicated that the Ohio Historical Society had been charged with by the state legislature to develop a national Afro-American museum. They were looking for a director and asked me if I was interested. And I always say that never having worked in a museum, didn't know much about museum operations. I knew they had a director and curator and some staff, but I didn't know exactly what these people did. So at any rate, uh, I gave him my resume, and a year later, I was invited by the Ohio Historical Society to come out for an interview. And their position was they were looking for someone who had a solid background in African-American history. And the Historical Society at that time had 62 museums, historic houses, sites, and felt like they could provide the in-service training that I needed to become a good museum director. So I worked out of the Ohio Historical Society for the first six or seven years in planning the museum. And then you worked there for 20 years? Yes, 19 years. I thought that I would come out to Ohio, build the museum, and go back to Washington. (laughs) And I didn't know at the time that the average museum takes about 10 years from an idea to a completed building. And while the museum was chartered in 1972. I think we were serious about moving the project forward in 1980 when I came out, and in 1988 we opened the uh, museum with great fanfare. The governor of Ohio, Governor Celeste, wanted to open the museum when the president of Senegal was visiting Ohio, uh, Senghor, and uh, I said, well, the museum is not ready to open. The exhibits are not complete and all. And they were pretty insistent. So I said, well, why don't we have a a ribbon cutting? So three months before the museum opened, we had an official ribbon cutting with the president and the governor. And then that September, we opened the museum. The state purchased the old campus of Wilberforce University for the site. And we renovated Carnegie Library as offices in storage facility, and the research center. So all told, I would say the project had roughly about 55,000 square feet when it opened. And then you went on to working on a museum in Cincinnati. Well, back in the 90s, when the National Conference of Christians and Jews in Cincinnati decided they wanted to build a museum dedicated to the Underground Railroad, They came to me to, I thought, ask my advice, but these board members were really scoping me out as a potential director, and I wasn't willing to leave the Wilberforce Museum, but I did go on as a consultant, uh, go down once a month, then once a week. And finally, toward 1996 and 97, I made the decision to take on the directorship full-time. So I worked on that project until... 2001, when I had a conflict with President of Procter Gamble, who was head of the capital campaign, and he was charged with raising $100 million for the project. And he, over the years, had probably contributed $17, $18 million of his own money. So he felt like this gave him the right to dictate how things should go. And finally, I, I went to his office and, and said, John, his name was John Pepper. I said, John, I wouldn't presume to come over to your office to tell you how to run Procter & Gamble, so 
why are you telling me how to run this museum? So he admitted that he was wrong and that he would back off. And he backed off for about three days and then he was back to doing what he wanted to do. So I told uh, Judge uh, Nathan Jones, who was co-chair with Harry Whipple, who was publisher of the Cincinnati Enquirer, I said, if you have about a year to rein him in, uh, and if if you don't, then I'm going to leave. And I guess they didn't believe it. I did decide to leave after the president of the Cincinnati Museum Center convinced me to come over and run the operation there. The Museum Center was a pretty big project from the outset. He put all three museums, the Children's Museum, Natural History, and History, under me, as well as the library, the, uh, the research center, the education programs, the science programs, and the journal for the Cincinnati Historical Society. So I went down the spring, I think it was April, when the riots occurred after uh, this young man was shot in the back by the police. A rioting occurred, and that's the week that I started working for the uh, center. What year was that? 2001. And I was actually living in the Omni and could go from the Omni to working back because there was a curfew at night. And first thing he asked me to do was to do an exhibition on the riots as a way of bringing the community together. And we called it Civil Unrest in Cincinnati, Voices of the Community. And I thought I had one or two years to put the exhibit together, and he said we needed to do it in 90 days, which was totally unheard of. But I had the resources, I had the staff, and together we interviewed people who participated in the riots, the local business community, the police, civic leaders, and we put all of those voices on monitors so that people going through the exhibit could actually hear. And we gave a uh, brief history of rioting in Cincinnati because people were saying only black people riot. And as it turned out, up until 1968, all the riots that occurred in Cincinnati were occurred because of white dissatisfaction, either with uh, government or with the fact that there were too many blacks in the city or for various reasons like that. So people had an eye-opener in terms of the riots that had occurred previously. And we had a what we call a whisper tunnel. You would go through this area that was blacking out, and you would hear things that white people said about blacks but wouldn't say in public. And you would hear things that black people said about whites but would not say in public. So that wanted people to think about these things as they went through the exhibition. And toward the end of the exhibit, they had the option of writing comments on the wall, participating in discussion groups about what they could do to make Cincinnati a, a better community. And then we asked them to write a postcard to themselves, making a commitment to bring about racial harmony in the city. And we told them that in six months, we would mail this postcard back to you to see if you had followed up on your commitment. And uh, that exhibit really involved a lot of people in Cincinnati, the National Conference of Christians and Jews, the ACLU and other various groups. Corporations would take advantage of the fact that admissions to the exhibit was free. They would send their people through and they could utilize conference rooms to talk about the experiences that they went through and 
what they might do to bring about change in Cincinnati. So that when the uh, Union Terminal needed a major renovation to the tune of a quarter of a billion dollars, the Cincinnati Museum Center put forth a, a levy, and the levy passed, and the, it just showed the commitment that the city had toward Union Terminal and Cincinnati Museum Center because of its commitment to the community. What was one of the most important museum projects that you've worked on? I think one of the more serious and important museums that I've worked on was the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum. And it was funded by the state legislature. And I really had my doubts about whether or not uh, we would be in a position to tell the true story of what happened in Mississippi. It was so horrendous. But we met with the members of the Legislative Black Caucus, and we met with a member of the Mississippi Supreme Court, and they charged the team with one thing, and that was to tell the truth, and they would have no other conditions on the stories that we told. They kept meticulous records of the things that they did. They used everything from all sorts of tactics, including violence, to keep the state from integrating. So we had access to all of those records. We interviewed the what they called the foot soldiers who had been actively involved. And we talked with relatives of Fannie Lou Hamer. And we interviewed Medgar Edgar's wife, who told, talked about the shooting of her husband, and other relatives of people who had been shot, others who were active in the movement. So we're able to tell the story in the words of those who had participated, including the whites who fought against integration. And we did not have to moralize. We did not have to embellish. We told a straightforward story, and it was really heart-wrenching. So when the museum opened during the Mississippi Bicentennial, it was, I think, one of the most moving exhibitions that I had ever worked on or ever gone through. And we ended up with, in the last gallery, talking about ways that the racists could reconcile and we emphasize that uh, among the materials that we produce for school kids. The Nashville Museum that you're working on now, mm-hmm. uh, this is your current project. Are you still working on it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, can you tell me about that? I was still working on the Mississippi project when I was approached by people in Nashville asking me if I would take on the directorship, and I said no. But I recommended, since they were still doing the research and planning, that they contact Portia Mosby, who was an ethnomusicologist from Indiana University, the best in the field, and Faith Ruffins, who was our curator for the first exhibit at the museum at Wilberforce. I considered her the top in the field. So Faith wrote the storyline and worked with them and scholars for about a year. And then in 2014, they asked me to do some consulting work, which I agreed to do on a part-time basis. And then as I began to wind down the work on the Mississippi project, I began working more on the Nashville project. I just wanted to be a consultant, and they insisted that I have the title of museum director. And so I agreed to do it from long distance. I would go down once a month for a week city had given the project the old convention center and a group of developers wanted that site for a 
million square foot development. And the city said, well, if you give the museum project space in the building and they were willing to give up the location, then we will, we will give it to you. So the developer agreed to build out 60,000 square feet for the museum on the uh, first floor across the street from the Rhineman Theater. And that's how we uh, got that location. The project went longer than I had anticipated. Uh, the developer was about a year late in getting started and then various other setbacks, and including COVID. But we are now scheduled to open with a grand opening, hopefully after the pandemic is over in June of 2021. It's, it covers African-American music from its African roots down to the, I would say, 2018, 2017. Covers spirituals, gospel, blues, jazz, rhythm and blues, and hip-hop. John, you have two daughters, a lawyer and an art historian, both of whom have collaborated with you on some of your projects over the years. However, I found this quote. One of the things my kids said as they were growing up was, when they left home, they never wanted to go to another museum. Is that true? Yes, yes. When I was planning the museum at Wilberforce, one way that I learned some of the best museum practices was to go and visit museums. And early in the planning, in the early 80s, when they were in elementary school, I decided to visit museums in the South to see what sort of collections they had amassed relating to African-American history. So we started in Williamsburg and we ended in southern Georgia and we went to 33 museums in two weeks. (laughs) But uh, each time we went on vacation we would always go to a, a museum and I was able to take them on trips. And then when We had programs at the museum at Wilberforce. I would always bribe them by telling them we're going to have cookies or we're going to have this during the reception. So they would uh, go out until they learned that maybe cookie wasn't worth it. (laughs) Well, it's an incredible story you've told. Tell me now, as you're retiring and growing older, looking back, what would you say your feelings are about your life at this point? I think that my life has been full, that I have worked long and hard at everything that I've done. So my children say that I'm not going to be able to retire. When I retired from the Cincinnati Museum Center in 2007, I went on to develop three additional museums. So I'm not going to take on any full-time project, but there are some books that I want to write. Uh, My wife is really encouraging me to write a book about developing museums, and I want to write about my Peace Corps experience. I have accumulated volumes and volumes of papers, and I donated 60 archival boxes of papers to Duke University. And then maybe uh, uh, relax a bit and enjoy life. (laughs) Since we recorded this interview, Dr. Fleming has participated in the early planning of the National Dutch Museum on Slavery. To get a sense of the new Nashville Music Museum, there are some excellent videos on YouTube which preview many of the exhibits at the National Museum of African American Music in Nashville. 
In our next episode, we will learn about Opening Minds Through Art, a research-based program for dementia patients developed at the Scripps Gerontology Center at Miami University of Ohio. This podcast was funded in part by the Dayton Foundation Del Mar Encore Fellows Initiative and the Ruth Frost Parker Center for Abundant Aging, a program of United Church Homes. Audio production and interviews were conducted by Del Mar Fellow Eric Johnson. <music>